So we're continuing our series this morning in the book of Philippians. One of the ongoing challenges we face, Al and I, and, and, and probably every pastor that actually preaches the Bible, I think there are fewer and fewer of us these days, uh, the challenge is to try to strike the right balance. I mean, th- th- this is such an incredible book that we could literally take significant time looking at each word or phrase and the tense used and um, the possible meanings in various translations, and it would be very interesting and educational for at least a couple of us. Um, But it might also obscure the intent of the words and the phrases and how they all fit together to tell this larger story. So we're always trying to find this right balance between just the right amount of verses. And and we've been tackling these sections in Philippians that aren't even really long in terms of number of verses, but they're very deep. And we're only scratching the surface, it feels like. But we're trying to deal with the text in a way that, that deals fairly with the Scripture and that hopefully helps us in this body find meaning and purpose in what's laid out here. So another pastor at another church might preach an altogether different sermon from the same text because the needs of his church are going to be a little bit different. But there are themes throughout the book of Philippians that none of us should ignore, no matter the audience or the context or the culture, and so we're just going to look at those briefly this morning before I continue. There they are, some of the main themes. I mean, it's clear that Paul is writing a very personal letter to the church. Uh, he was the founding pastor. He made several visits. He spent time with them. Um, they were near and dear to his heart, which gave him the desire, as well as a sense of obligation, to encourage, equip, and call them out on issues as needed. We'll see that a little more later. Uh, this is also a very joy-inducing book. We, we've mentioned this, in fact, we've called the series Joy. Thirteen times in this short little letter, Paul uses either joy or rejoice. Thirteen times. And almost every time, it's tied to Christian living, how we are to find joy in living for Christ. So in the midst of stress and, and chaos, in the midst of what we've already read about, a twisted and crooked generation, Paul calls on believers to continue to rejoice in the Lord. You'll notice he never asks or demands or suggests that Christians strive for happiness. But he repeatedly and continually calls us to live with joy. And we're going to discuss this idea a little bit more this morning. So it's no surprise then that this is also a very gospel-themed book. The, The word gospel is used eight times in this book because it's the gospel that allows us to live with joy. Uh, it's a doctrinally rich book. It's, it's got deep theological truths as well as some spiritual warnings, um, which again, we'll, we'll see a little bit in today's text. Uh, it's a very prayerful or prayer-inclining book. It started off with Paul saying how he was praying for this church, and towards the end, he reminds them to cast their burdens on the Lord so they can experience peace. And it's a holiness-growing book. Paul continues to encourage all Christians everywhere to practice right living, to practice orthopraxy, to to know what you believe and then live out your beliefs. Work out your own salvation, we heard, with fear and trembling. Keep your eyes on the prize. And so it's an eternity-gazing book also. Even in the midst of difficulty and persecution, Paul continues to call the church to look forward, to look upward, because to live is Christ, to die is gain. We are to press on toward the prize of the upward call of God. So these are all some of the significant themes through Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. They're all woven together to make up this remarkable letter. But as we've been pointing out, the kind of the overarching theme for all of this seems to be stand firm in your faith so that you can find 
joy, so that you can live with joy. We're going to see that again in today's text. So we're going to read through this whole section, and then we'll go back and look at it in smaller chunks. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There's just a couple little things here we're going to talk about. But let's pray first. Father, we're grateful for the chance to gather this morning. Uh, And and Lord, we're we're reminded that uh, even as we think that we are living in in tumultuous, heavy, dark times, and we are, uh, we think even as we are starting to see what what may look like coming persecution, and, and, and we do get a sense for that. Lord, we're reminded there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, every culture has had its dark moments, its dark periods. Every culture has had persecution of Christ and his church. And so, Lord, we pray that we can learn, we can glean from your word this morning how we are to live in that culture, how we are to continue to shine as, as bright lights in a dark culture, how we can live uh, a life that's worthy of our call so that we can find joy, that we don't settle for happiness, but we strive for joy in knowing Christ. So open our our hearts and our ears and our minds this morning to hear what you have for us in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are only four chapters in this short book, uh, and this is the start of chapter three, so we're just halfway through, and yet Paul starts off here with, finally. And it seems even more strange if you look ahead a little bit and realize that chapter four also has a finally. So I think we can conclude that this is not the final finally uh, that Paul has for us here. So this really serves more as a, a, a furthermore. Or now then, let me go on to say, it doesn't si- signal the end of this letter or the start of the end, but it does signal a transition. Paul just wrote, if you were here last week or watched online or maybe intuited it somehow, Paul just wrote about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how they had become exemplary ministers of the gospel. They'd helped the local churches. They were helping Paul. They were committed to the cause of Christ. Even when it nearly killed Epaphroditus, he stood firm. And so now Paul kind of introduces a contrast. Here are what good ministers of the gospel look like, and he goes on to talk about some of these other not-so-good ministers of the gospel. He warns against false teachers. But he starts this with another call to joy. He says, rejoice in the Lord. I know I'm repeating myself, he says, But apparently, I need to say it, and you need to hear it, so I'm going to say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. 
It seems like we need a regular reminder. Rejoice in the Lord. And then he jumps right into this false teacher warning, which says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we know that, that Paul is referring to those of the circumcision party that were the Judaizers. And the Judaizers taught that in order for these new Christians, these new converts, to be true Christians, in order for them to be real Christians, um, and Christianity was initially thought to be a sect within Judaism, so in order for them to be real Christians, they had to live according to Jewish custom, including being circumcised. So in essence, the Judaizers taught that Christians had to become Jews first before they could come to Christ. Otherwise, it didn't count. So the teaching of the Judaizers was aimed squarely at the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and Paul was adamantly opposed to this teaching. And this has been a recurring theme in Paul's letters. You remember a couple uh, months back we were in Galatians, and the whole letter to the church uh, to the to the Galatians had the central theme of circumcision of these false teachers and how it was absolutely not required for salvation. There is even a meeting, there is a council gathered together of the current church leaders to discuss this very topic. And it had been settled. Circumcision is not required for salvation. And here it is again. So we know that this controversy has kind of spread far and wide in the early church. In fact, there's like a 12 to 15 year gap between the time that Paul wrote Galatians and the time that he wrote Philippians. For 12 or 15 years now, this false teaching continues. The two cities are five or six hundred miles apart, so it has spread geographically. It's kind of like the old quote, a lie spreads around the world before the truth can pull on its pants. This lie persists. And Paul has been fighting this lie, this false teaching, for more than a decade, which probably explains his directness here. Look out for the dogs. I mean, this is very intentional word choice on Paul's part. It was common for Jews of the day to refer to Gentiles as dogs. They were a lower class. They were lesser than. So Paul says, nope, it's not the Gentiles who are the dogs. It's the Jews who are trying to mislead the Gentiles. They're the bad people. They're trying to lead them away from the gospel, which makes them not just dogs, but it also makes them evildoers. It makes them flesh mutilators. I mean, Paul's not beating around the bush here. He pretty much attacks this issue head on. He's planted his flag firmly in the ground for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is Jesus plus nothing. And certainly not plus circumcision. Which is interesting here that Paul then says, for we are the circumcision. But then he explains it. He says the the circumcised are those of us who worship by the Spirit of God. Those of us who glory in Christ Jesus. Those of us who put no confidence in the flesh. So salvation, he's pointing out, is a spiritual process. It's not a physical act of the flesh. The flesh eventually becomes involved as as we seek to deny the sins of the flesh, as as we uh, seek out baptism, as we reorder our lives to live rightly. There are physical components to following Christ, but the physical act of circumcision is not one of them. Circumcision has no role in in our spiritual transformation. So Paul lays out this great argument in support of what he's just stated. Salvation is of the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit. The flesh is secondary to this process at best. Our physical bodies, even our 
upbringing, our, our physical surroundings, our environment, that the, the details of our daily physical existence have little value compared to our newfound righteousness, which comes from Christ alone. He says, the flesh counted for anything towards our, towards our righteousness, if, for example, observance of these Jewish customs, like circumcision, if those added to our righteousness, like the false teachers are claiming, then Paul says, well, then I've got it made. I mean, if we're looking at acts of righteousness, I'm there. He, and then he lays out his, his bona fides. He provides his CV for everyone. He reminds them of just who they're talking to. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, like every good Jew. I'm of the people of Israel. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. You can't get more Hebrew than me. So I've got the bloodline. But I also followed all the Jewish customs. I was a Pharisee. I studied the Torah. I was a spiritual leader. I was a philosopher among the Jews. I was so zealous for Judaism that I persecuted the Christians. So as far as my own personal standard of righteousness goes, I was blameless. I was the poster boy for Jewishness. I followed every law and every custom. I was a righteous dude. So if works of the flesh led to lead to provide salvation, then I had it made. And then he gets to the next verse and the next word. But... But Paul has built this whole structure of Jewish righteousness, how he was an exemplary Jew, according to their law, according to their customs. He, he, he built this edifice, this structure of his own personal righteousness that was built on everything that the Judaizers were teaching. And then in one word, he just blew the whole house of cards down. But. But whatever gain I had, whatever self-worth I felt, Whatever sense of righteousness I thought I had, whatever moral or spiritual superiority I might have felt, I came to count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, I realized, well, he was made to realize that none of it mattered. None of that mattered. I had to think long and hard about this this week. And it occurs to me that the, perhaps the modern interpretation of this might be Paul saying, everything I thought was important about me, everything I had worked hard to develop, this whole facade, this whole persona, everything I did to make myself stand out from the crowd, to seem respect, respectable, to seem successful, everything I considered to be the most important aspects of my life, everything that made up my identity was not important at all. Turns out it was all pointless, meaningless. All my rights, my birthrights, my privilege, my, my standing, my status, position, notoriety, my ethnicity, my race, my material gain. I mean, the, the whole sum of my entire being up to that point, my whole public identity was, in point of fact, less than nothing. When compared to the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So if everything about me, all those important things about me, if that all goes away tomorrow, but Christ remains, okay. 
Now, clearly, this is a pretty bold statement. And what occurred to me was that Paul boldly declares here should be our bold declaration as well. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having a nice car or, or a, a nice house or a family or, a, you know, fancy, highfalutin, high-paying job or whatever else the Lord chooses to bless us with. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem arises when our happiness in having those things becomes more important than our joy in the Lord who has given us those things in the first place. When we begin to value the gifts above the giver. The problem is when we start to see ourselves when we base our identity in terms of what we have, what we've earned, how people see us, instead of finding our identity in Christ. So all of those things, our possessions, our standing, our reputation, should never rise to the same level of prominence as our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All of those things, as good as they may be, and again, there's nothing wrong with those things, as good as they may be, should not be, should not become the core of our identity. Else they become idols. They make no contribution to our salvation. They don't bring us joy in the Lord. They distract us from joy in the Lord. And oh, how we've turned this around. Turned this upside down in our wealthy, status-obsessed identity-driven culture. You know, we've got celebrity pastors and worship-leading rock stars that turn out to have feet of clay on a regular basis. But they look good doing it. We have so-called gospels today suggesting that as Christians, if we're not wealthy or, or making it a goal to become wealthy, then God probably isn't for us and we don't have enough faith. So the proof of salvation for those seems to be it's Jesus plus stacks of cash. That's how you know you're saved. Apparently joy in the Lord comes from 50s and 100s. Or we're told that if we don't practice social activism properly, if we don't identify with this particular ethnic group or with that particular gender identity group, then we're not being true Christians. We're not being real Christians then our, our, our identity will be tarnished or we might get canceled. So the proof of salvation for some is Jesus plus activism. Jesus plus support for something other than the gospel. Even supporting causes that may or may not be antithetical to the gospel itself. So Paul seems to say those causes, those ideas, those ideals are not necessarily unimportant but they're far from the most important things about us when we choose to find our core identity in anything other than Jesus Christ we are chasing idols we're worshiping idols and I know this is not popular to say out loud but we need to think deeply about these issues I have heard or read so many times from so many church leaders that real Christians must support an organization like Black Lives Matter, for example. 
And when they say that, they're equating a man-made organization with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't be a true Christian if you don't support this. So it's Jesus plus support for this group or this position. I think that's a sin. Some might argue it's a heresy. It starts to change the gospel. It presents a false gospel. Politics never even have to come into it. When I hear supposed Christian leaders say that real Christians, true Christians, have to be welcoming and affirming regarding every sexual permutation under the sun, or they're not Christians, then we're equating sexual idolatry with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a sin. And it's arguably heresy. They're either maximizing or or self-aggrandizing our personal value and choice of lifestyle, or they're minimizing the life-saving and sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. In neither way, it's a problem. Even church organizations and denominations are buying into this identity substitution. When we look right here, and Paul says, everything I held dear, everything I thought was important, Everything I thought to be true and worthwhile about me, all my opinions, all my so-called right standing, all my self-described righteousness, my entire self-identification edifice was rubbish. I lost all of those personal identifiers. I, I lost my position as a, as a Pharisee. I got rid of the hats and the robes, and I'm considered a traitor to my people by some. In fact, I'm spending all my time and effort preaching to people I used to consider dogs. And thank God. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So this is amazing, I think, for for speaking about loss, for for speaking about losing everything that Paul thought was important to him. This sounds remarkably joyful. Paul says, "I, I gave up what I thought was the most important things about me to find my identity in Christ, to be who he wants me to be, to be who he created me to be. And there's no hint here. There's no there's no sense of mourning or despondency or despair. There's nothing to suggest that Paul is second guessing this decision even as he's writing this from a prison cell. He is okay. And without intentionally, maybe, or without really spelling it out clearly, Paul displays here, I think, an incredible insight. Most of our human achievements, most of our working and and, and scurrying and life living, most of our self-declared identity is really just an effort to make us happy. And happiness is, at its core, an entirely selfish pursuit to feel good about ourselves. And it's almost entirely built on our circumstances, our possessions, our achievements, our, our bank accounts, our social standing, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. If we lose those things, then our happiness fades. This is the exact opposite of what Paul is just talking about. Paul says, I lost all that stuff and I found joy. I didn't lose happiness, I found joy. And remember, I said this earlier, Paul never calls Christians to find their happy. He calls us to find joy. In fact, as I was thinking, I really struggled with this one this week, I'm telling you. As I was thinking through this this week, it, it, it occurred to me that 
Happiness may be from the devil. In that, happiness provides a great distraction for us. It, it, it gives us some sense of pleasure or, or, or satisfaction. A sense of achievement, perhaps. But I honestly think it may be just a cheap alternative to joy. Which is how Paul started off this whole section. Rejoice or find joy in the Lord. Paul says that this is the culmination of your journey. There is joy to be had and you can find it in Christ Jesus. Happiness says, or the lie of the devil, you're happy now with your lot in life. You have all the stuff you think you want or need. But you know what? That guy over there, he's got a bigger house. He's got a nicer car. He's got a little more money. You can be even happier than you are now. You just need more stuff. You just need more status. You just need more social media followers. That will make you happy. And Paul saw through the lie. He said, my hard work, my efforts, my achievements, my good works aren't enough. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul got to the point in his life where he realized that all of his efforts, all of his outward identifiers, the Pharisee, I don't know if they had a wardrobe, like a uniform, whatever he had, uh, his title as persecutor of the Christian church, his deep wisdom regarding Mosaic law, none of that counted one iota towards real, true righteousness. It was all window dressing. It was all meant to puff him up and impress other people. It gave him a false security and a false righteousness. And Paul cut a pretty impressive figure in his day. You know, people looked at Paul and said, wow, there's Paul the Pharisee. And they were impressed. God looked at Paul and was decidedly unimpressed. So if we care about true godly righteousness, we have to depend on the one who literally defined righteousness. That would be a good place to start. It was God who wrote the book. It's God who gets to define the terms. And we either accept them or we reject them. Even though we like to think there's a third way, we found this kind of happy medium. You know, isn't it interesting, I think, that one of the more popular phrases that's developed in our culture over the last decade or so is, my truth. So we've latched on to this grand idea of truth, but we don't want it to be that truth. So here's my truth. It was just a couple of years back, um, someone kind of influential, okay, like 2,000 years or so ago, someone said, what is truth? And asked the question as though it's unknowable. How do we know for sure what truth is? We've taken it a step further and suggested that truth is knowable, and we get to define it. I mean, at least I get to define it for me. It's my truth. And let's be honest, if it's my truth, it's probably true for all of you too, so you might as well just do what I'm telling you to do, because that's truth. 
we've brought this lofty and noble concept of immutable and unchanging truth, and we turn it into essentially how I'm feeling today. That's my truth. And my truth could change tomorrow. Let, Let me get back to you. If you follow my Twitter feed, you'll see what my truth is today, and then you'll know. It'll depend on how I slept last night or the, you know, that late night pepperoni pizza, how that affected me. I'm not entirely sure, but my truth will change based on my circumstances. So when we reject God's definition of truth and righteousness, then we are free to define truth and righteousness for ourselves. And we begin, we, we begin to have this God-like autonomy. We get to define truth. And then we get to demand that everyone else bow before our truth. And we get to become little gods. Defining truth. Deciding who gets canceled for not following our truth. We even get to defy hardwired biology that determines sexuality and gender with our truth. Because we are important. We are godlike. And the gospel says, God says, Paul came to understand that neither truth nor righteousness come from us. Neither truth nor righteousness is based on or derived from any of our thoughts or our behaviors or our actions. Paul did not have a righteousness of his own. He just thought he did. based on or or derived from his knowledge of the law or even how he performed the, the rituals, the only righteousness, the only one that matters, the only true righteousness comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith in Christ. That's the trade-off that we all face. A life of self-fulfillment or, or, or self-determination, living by my truth, you know, I did it my way. Well, we all get to live like little G-gods for as long as we're alive anyway, and then we find out we were probably wrong. We, we try to find this ever-evolving, ever-changing standard of happiness, or we decide to live for the sake of Christ, where we go in knowing we're going to surrender some control. We're going to worship Jesus as Lord. We become his servants. We, re- we realize we're not God, big G or little g. But in that life is joy. Definite, attainable, and unending. That's the decision Paul came to make. His circumstances were a little different than ours and how he came to Christ, for sure. But still, Paul says, I had it made. I, I was a religious leader. In my righteousness, I thought I was pretty secure in all that, all that I said and did until Jesus came and said, nope, you got it all wrong. Your righteousness doesn't matter. You need mine. And from then on, Paul realized that his righteousness, his salvation, his truth, his hope came by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he reordered his entire life based on that understanding. British pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching years ago on the uh, first chapter of Ephesians. And we just have gone through that. You may remember some of these. He had phrases like, you know, we've seen, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, that we should be holy and blameless. In him we have redemption through his blood. We've been chosen before the foundation of the world. And somewhere in that sermon series, Pastor Jones said, our 
greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ. That's the call of the gospel. I would suggest that's the goal of the gospel, to call us up to live as Christ intended us to live. Living by his design for us, his pattern for our lives, which means then we develop an all-new identity. We leave the old identity behind, we develop an all-new identity, so that we are no longer slaves to sin. That's who we are without Christ. We're slaves to sin. But we are reconciled to God. We're adopted sons of God. Rather than fearing God as a judge, we worship God as a father. Just think about the impact of that alone. We willingly endure suffering for our eventual reward. We, we, we lose our love for the world and we long for heaven. We're no longer conformed to the world. And the language the Bible uses is we put off the old self and we put on the new. The old self was all about us. What we determined to be of great significance for the world, it was like pulling on an identity costume. How we want people to see us. For Paul, it was being a Pharisee or a Jew, being a zealous persecutor of the church. That made him feel important and valuable. It gave him a sense of purpose. In our day, maybe some of the things that we put on, our value in our jobs or houses, cars, sexual identity, which causes we support, maybe even how Christian we look to other Christian people. And that way lies legalism. Rather than focusing on how Christ-like we really are and how much more work we have to do. You'll notice that Paul's new list of righteousness includes nothing about himself. In fact, it really points to Paul's emptying of himself, which is what we just talked about as the example of Christ and his humility a week or so ago. Paul says, I count everything about me. All the stuff I thought was important, it's a loss because of the value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And his life changed. His way of thinking changed. It led to a significant lifestyle change. Paul no longer wanted to be known as a great Pharisee leader or a great teacher even. He says, my goal now, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My big goal in life now, my, my, my only goal really, is that I may know him, that I may know Christ, that I can be known in him, known by him. I want to try and live how he lived. I want to try and feel what he felt. I want to try to experience what he experienced, even if that means sharing in his sufferings and dying as he died. So that I'll be resurrected just as he was resurrected. And Paul's talking about suffering and death here, and yet it feels entirely joyful. It's like he's almost hoping for these circumstances beyond his control. Uh, you know, he's, he's locked up under guard. He could, he could end up being killed soon. It's almost like he's hoping for that just so he can share in the suffering of Christ. But he's okay either way. And he starts all this, this whole section with rejoice in the Lord. Happiness is based on circumstance. Joy is based in the knowledge of God and faith in God. 
You know, there's a popular ex- expression in business circles and probably other places, but it's good is the enemy of great. You've probably heard that expression. The idea is, you know, a company, they, they, they build a company or they're building a product, and, and that product is really, really good. And then they stop there, they move on to the next thing. Rather than with just a little more work, a little more effort, a little more time, that good product could be a great product. I think that's true for happiness and joy as well. Happiness is not a bad thing, but it can become the enemy of joy. We can set our sights too low and settle for happiness rather than working a little harder and finding joy. The world, the flesh, and the devil have many of us convinced that the greatest goal in this life is to be happy. And that makes it all about me. Who I choose to be and how I choose to present myself, the, the, the methods and the choices I, I use to make me happy, but it's all temporal and fleeting. The Bible says that the greatest goal in this life is to endure it by finding joy in the Lord and placing our faith in the God of our ultimate and eternal salvation. And once we find joy in the Lord, there will be happiness. But not all the time. Nobody's happy all the time. If they do, we medicate them. (laughs) There are going to be challenges and, and trials and persecution and suffering and dying, but there is immeasurable and ultimate joy to be found in knowing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, sharing in the resurrection of the dead, for there is an inheritance that is unspoiled and undefiled waiting for us. So every now and again, we've got to do a little self-assessment here. What is our goal? Where are we headed? Are we after fleeting happiness that comes through focus on ourselves and our achievements? Or is our goal really eternal joy that comes through faith in Christ? And do you find your identity in your choices? Do you find your identity in all the stuff, or do you choose to be identified with Christ and try to order your life that way? I mean, consider just how quickly our culture has changed just in the last five years. Isn't it amazing? I mean, one minute, you know, you're all hip and with it and groovy, and the next you're being canceled. How is there any sense of security or meaning in that? And the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 28 says, Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're looking for peace, if you're looking for some sense of comfort, some security, there it is. It's not a hard choice when we really think about it. So let's not get swept up in the current of culture. Let's hold firm to God's word. Let's stand firm in his promises. Let's find joy in the Lord and live like we mean it. Let's pray. Lord, as always, we're grateful for the gift of your word, for how it um, is amazingly timeless, how it applies just as much today as it did to the first hearers. Perhaps the details changed, the names have changed, um, but the heart, the attitude, the behaviors remain the same. 
So, Lord, we pray uh, as, as Christ followers, Lord, in this church and in, in this city, we pray that uh, you continue to build us up, to encourage us, to equip us, to call us to live up to the calling you've given to us, to be light, to be salt in this present darkness. Lord, we pray for a courage to live according to your precepts and not cave in to the demands of a lost, chaotic, twisted culture. We pray that you give us strength and courage to stand firm in your word, but also your compassion and your love for people who are trapped in the darkness. Lord, may they see something in us that encourages them, that calls out to them. And Lord, then give us boldness to share what we know. Give us, give us boldness to share the reason for our hope. We just pray that your word continues to, to sink in, to help build us up and encourage us and call us to live out our faith, to stand firm and to find our joy in the Lord. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.